0: to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network.
2: Welcome back to the New Books Network. I am your host, Stephen Dozeman. Rosa Luxemburg occupies a complex place in our history, partly because there are several different Rosas one can find scattered across the world. The feminist activist, revolutionary Marxist, economist, journalist, essayist, and literary critic all have been picked up and co-opted by different movements at different times. While this speaks to her versatility as a thinker, writer, and person... It also reflects the fragmented way in which her writing has been collected, edited, translated, and published. A pamphlet here, an essay there, a book or two, and several collections of letters, but little effort has been made to present her in a thorough, well-organized format. Luckily, that is changing with the ongoing efforts to publish the entirety of her output in English translation, the vast majority of it being translated now for the first time by Verso. Spearheading this project is Peter Houdis and a team of international scholars who are working to collect and translate her work and publish it in a complete format. As of right now, they have published a 500-page collection of letters, two volumes of her economic writings, and a volume of her political writings, all approximately 600 pages, and the series is currently projected to have somewhere between 15 and 20 volumes when complete, although because so much of her work is still being discovered in various archives across Europe, it may expand beyond that as well. This episode will be a sort of introduction where we discuss the basics of Luxembourg's life, the key themes of her work, and the editorial efforts going on behind the scenes to make this project a reality. But we're hoping to do more episodes exploring each volume in greater depth as they're made available. Obviously, a massive project like this is incredibly time-consuming and resource-intensive, which is why the people behind it are asking for your help. While some funds have been made available, the team is still looking for some extra funding to put towards the translation efforts. The editors are not being paid for the work they do on this. For them, it's a labor of love, but the crowdfunding will go to the numerous translators being brought on board. If you are excited and able to help, visit the Toledo Translation Fund and contribute to the project. My guest today, Peter Houdis, is a lifelong activist and is a professor of philosophy in the humanities at Oakton Community College. In addition to being the general editor of the complete works of Rosa Luxemburg, he is the author of Marx's Concept of the Alternative to Capitalism and Franz Fanon, Philosopher of the Barricades. He also wrote a new preface to the reprint of J.P. Nettles' biography of Rosa Luxemburg, reprinted in a single volume by Verso in 2019. All right, Peter Houdis, welcome to the New Books Network. Uh, hello, well, uh, great to be here. Yes, yeah, so we always like to have guests introduce themselves uh, at the beginning of episodes. So could you tell us maybe a bit about yourself and what your work and research tends to focus on?
1: Uh, yes, I'm a professor of philosophy at Oakton Community College. I've been long time active in the left and the radical movement. And um, my areas of interest are uh, Marxist theory, Hegelian dialectics, uh, critical theory, uh, race theory, and of course, Rosa Luxemburg, uh, who I think is one of the most outstanding figures in the history of socialism and Marxism that I became attracted to her work very early in life, though didn't know much about the background of her work. But I found her, when I encountered her writings, one of the most interesting and liberatory uh, thinkers within the socialist tradition. And then later on in life, I began to become more devoted to translating her and publishing her and writing about her and other things. So it's basically um, my areas of work.
2: Yeah, excellent. So uh, to kick things off with this episode, I'm wondering if you could tell us a bit just about who she was, uh, both as an activist and a theorist. Um, You recently wrote the introduction to the reprint of J.P. Nettles' biography of her. So I'm sure you'll have a couple of things you can say about that. But can you just give listeners a sense of uh, who she was or just some things that everyone should know about her?
1: Mm-hmm. Well, the important thing she, to know, of course, she's a woman. Uh, she's Polish. She was born in Zamosh, outside, not far from Warsaw, but grew up in Warsaw. She was Jewish. Uh, she was disabled. Uh, She had a childhood injury that left her partially uh, crippled um, uh, when she was five years old and caused her to spend a lot of time in bed where she apparently began to do reading and gain some of her intellectual abilities by putting that to use. Um, I mention these because she's an outsider. She is somebody who is living at the period when the part of Poland that she resided in was part of the Russian Empire. Poland had been divided uh, into uh, Austria-Hungary, uh, uh, Prussia, later Germany, and uh, the Tsarist Empire of Russia. So she was uh, in Russian-occupied Poland as a Jew, as a woman, and as a teenager, joins the revolutionary movement, which was fighting for democracy. Of course, Russia at the time was a completely non-democratic Tsarist state, uh, and uh, for socialist revolution, she became convinced that marx's uh, and Marxism's um, Critique of capitalism was completely valid, and she wanted to couple a fight for democracy with the fight for socialism. She had to flee um, her homeland uh, when she was a teenager uh, because the secret police was breaking up the organization that she was a member of, the proletariat party, uh, and that uh, it was made very clear to her that it would be best for her to get out of the country. So she went to Switzerland and um, studied uh, economics and mathematics, natural science at the University of Zurich, where she got a PhD in economics, which was the first woman, I believe, in Europe to get a PhD in economics at the time. So she's a pathbreaking thing, comes from a very humble background in a middle-class family, educated middle-class and assimilated Jewish family, but she ends up in Zurich University and writes a quite uh, remarkable dissertation called The Industrial Development of Poland, which deeply impressed... <laughs> Uh, her professors that were on the dissertation committee for its erudition and its rigor for somebody so young. Uh, but she didn't want to stay in Switzerland, which was a backwater in terms of politics. Uh, she really wanted to be where the heart of the socialist movement was at the time. That is in the now we're talking the late 1890s. Germany was, uh, of course, the fastest growing economy in the world at the time. Uh, and it had the largest socialist movement and the fastest growing socialist movement at the time. She wanted to be in the center of the action. So she moved to Berlin uh, in 1898. And as soon as she lands in Berlin, she's involved in a political controversy within the German Social Democratic Party, which was the socialist party that had over a million members at the time, affiliated with the Second International, which was the uh, international organization of uh, socialist parties that had been formed uh, about a decade earlier. And uh, she involved herself in all sorts of political controversies within that organization. And one of the most famous ones is her debate with Edward Bernstein over the question of reform or revolution. That is, uh, is capitalism evolving, as Bernstein argued, in a direction that contradicts Marx's predictions? That is, um, capitalism is becoming less violent, less savage, uh, less repressive, and it will naturally give way to socialism? uh, Or... uh, do you still need a revolution in order to uh, exit from capitalism? Luxembourg argued the latter, Bernstein the former, and they came into a bitter polemic over this issue. And still, she's a pretty young, right? She's not 30 years old yet. Uh, she writes uh, this book, Reform and Revo- or Revolution, uh, which becomes quickly known throughout Europe as the most profound and incisive critique, not just of Bernstein, but of reformist tendencies within socialism that wanted to accommodate in some way with existing society. Um, from there, she becomes gradually a major figure within this German Social Democratic Party and the Second International, even though she didn't have a formal leadership position. Woman, of course, had no right to vote at that period in Germany, uh, but she had no formal position within the party leadership. But she wrote for many of the party publications. She was a organizer on the election campaigns, urging people to vote for socialist candidates, and she involved herself in uh, doing a uh, array of other theoretical work, which included um, eventually becoming a teacher in the Social Democratic Party's school in Berlin, where they trained party comrades and trade unionists in Marx's theory. And this was one of her great loves of her life. She spent seven years as an activist, as a theoretician, and as a, well, not quite full-time, but almost full-time teacher. So a lot of different dimensions of her work are rolled up in her life. I would have to say what really makes her uh, remarkable is her involvement in direct involvement in one of the most important revolutions of modern times, the 1905 revolution in Russia. This was very unexpected, at least for some people. Russia at the time was a backward country, uh, was just beginning to quasi-industrialize. Uh, it did not have a strong socialist movement, at least, and nor could it, because everything that was oppositional had to be underground, uh, Germans tended to look, Western Europeans tended to look at, at Russia as backwater and as lacking sophisticated political movements, let alone theoretical direction for them, uh, and yet the 1905 revolution breaks out and it becomes the most serious challenge to any existing society that's been seen since the days of the Paris Commune or even the 1848 revolutions. and. Luxembourg throws herself into supporting this revolution. Uh, She writes some brilliant analyses about it. She tries to translate or transmit the lessons she learns from the revolution in Russia to her experience in Germany. She travels to Russian-occupied Poland to directly take part in the revolution. And it's at that point that she meets Lenin, she meets Trotsky, she meets Zinoviev, she meets Martov, different leaders of the Mensheviks and Bolsheviks, and uh, she... uh, it develops a whole series of theoretical and political works based on that interchange. So she's an important political figure and of course I haven't mentioned the most important part perhaps of her political life which is then her involved not involvement directly but she was in jail during the 1917 Russian Revolution uh, for opposition to World War I but she was freed by, from jail by the German Revolution of 1918. And then she spent the last several months of her life trying to advance that revolution beyond the confines of a liberal democratic state towards a socialist revolution. So her political work is all, is very widely wide encompassing and significant. But she also, and this is often neglected in a lot of discussions of Luxembourg, we have a weird compartmentalization. Uh, people interested in the humanities and politics and activism, of course, they are attracted and look at her political writings. But she was an outstanding economist, not just in the dissertation she wrote to get her Ph.D., but she wrote three other major economic works, books, full-length books on econo- economics that I think uh, put her up there as among the three or four most significant economists of the 20th century, in my humble opinion, perhaps the most significant woman economist in some respects of the first half of the 20th century. So uh, she's somebody who embodies these different dimensions. And last but not least, I should mention an amazing personality. This was a woman who was not afraid to make her voice heard despite being denigrated for being a woman in a male world, but the political parties of the time were completely male-dominated. Being from a so-called backward place like Russian-occupied Poland, being a Jew at a time when anti-Semitism was not only rampant in society in general but within the socialist movement itself, at least in aspects of it, she had to claw her way to the top by herself uh, and with some help from her colleagues against a lot of obstacles. And yet she never lost her sense of humanism. Uh, Her correspondence is wonderful to read, to see about her wide ranging interests, not just in literature, which she talks extensively in her correspondence, but her interest in the human personality. How can one maintain one's political activism And theoretical work as an academic, or in her case, outside the academy, but not lose sight of the importance of the personal and loving relationships and the emotional side of human existence. And this is brought out in some incredible letters she wrote back and forth to her comrade and lover, Leo Yogesh, who were together for some 17 years in a relationship, and letters she wrote after their breakup, dealing with these personal as well as political issues that many people a century later look back on and see her as actually a a kind of important literary figure.
2: Yeah, that's an excellent kind of overview of her life. Um, You kind of alluded to this a bit, but I wanted to ask, you talk about the Carp compartmentalization of her. Um, She's an activist to some, a theorist to others, to some she's a Marxist, to others she's a feminist. Um, So she's kind of been uh, picked up and disassembled in various ways. So I'm wondering if you can speak a little more to that, her kind of uh, weird place, uh, not just within the Marxist tradition, but within a whole variety of different currents that have kind of picked up different parts of her, often to the exclusion of others. Can you
1: speak to that a bit? Sure. Great question. Um, Well, you know, uh, the fact that she's interpreted in different ways through different lenses is actually a very good thing in a way because a a, a work of, of, first of all, as D.H. Lawrence once put it, a work of art is never great unless it escapes its author. In other words, its meaning lies in how it impacts people who come after the author has penned the work, okay? And if you think of Luxembourg's life as a kind of work, right, that she wrote, uh, that's certainly true. In other words, We look back on previous thinkers in history or figures in history, whether it's in the arts or whether it's in the sciences or in revolutionary politics, and we interpret them with eyes of the problems of our own time. So before the the second wave of feminism in the 1960s, it didn't occur to most people to think of Luxembourg in terms of feminism, because she wasn't actively involved in the women's movement of her time. There was a very strong women's movement in Germany, and she never publicly called herself a feminist. So it was just assumed that, well, That's not what she was interested in. But, you know, a new movement or a new era gives new eyes or a new lens to see things in a thinker that might not have been noted before. So in the 1980s, late 70s, 80s, a number of feminist theoreticians began to look at Luxembourg anew and saw that, yes, she didn't want to be, uh, she she did not want to be, as she put it at the time, sidetracked into working on the so-called woman question which for many men, party leaders, were very happy for her to do that because then she wouldn't be in the way of, um, uh, they wouldn't have to worry about her criticisms of them. Uh, let her work on the margins in the woman's uh, auxiliary, so to speak, and they uh, maintain uh, control of the theoretical arsenal of Marxism. She wanted to get into that theoretical arsenal and be a c- contributor to it. So... Um, Nevertheless, the point is, is that with feminism, yes, some people read her or still read her as not interested in feminism. Much more accurate is this lens that feminist theorists have provided to see that she had a profound feminist dimension in many different aspects of her work, even though it wasn't what she focused much of her political attention on. Now, the same thing happens on other levels, right? Um, right now, there's a conference going to be held in two weeks uh, in uh, Berlin uh, celebrating the 150th anniversary of her death. There's going to be several panels on Rosa Luxemburg and the, and the issue of decolonialism. Now, in one sense, this springs directly from her work because one of the most important aspects of her economic work was arguing that colonialism and imperialism are, in, are necessary so long as there's capitalism. Not every country who's capitalist has to engage in colonialism or imperialism. But as a global system, capitalism cannot exist without colonialism and imperialism. Uh, but the point is, is that prior to a gener- uh, prior to just only maybe a few years ago, this aspect of her work was not focused on as much. And definitely an uh, aspect that's embedded in that work on critique of colonialism and imperialism on her part, the question of racism wasn't discussed at all. And yet here we have the Black Lives Matters movement of the last year and we have around the world, I'm seeing various discussions of people saying, hey, what did Luxembourg have to say about race and its relationship to capitalism? Does she ever talk about racialized capitalism? How can we use her work or view her work to understand the inseparability of racial discrimination and the capitalist mode of production? This is a discussion that's now happening. Again, it it wouldn't have happened a, a generation ago, let alone, and even more recently than that. But the issues of our day give no eyes to see things that we didn't see before. Of course, there's always a danger to reading into a thinker uh, and reading things that aren't there, or um, overreading them, perhaps, or simply trying to fit them into a kind of cubbyhole of your own um, preoccupation, at the, uh, which doesn't fit her historical era. And this happens very often with Luxembourg. Uh, I would have to say that she died a tragic death. Right? She was martyred in the cause of the revolution. She was a leader of the German revolution who was killed by the proto-fascists uh, called the Freikorps in 1919. Um, so it, it, one of the problems of being a martyr, besides of course <laughs> not surviving, is with some exceptions, it's hard to criticize you. In other words, people who were politically adversaries of hers after her death claim to still be working in her spirit uh, such as uh, certain West Germany had a poster stamp for Rosa Luxemburg, East Germany had a poster stamp for Rosa Luxemburg, <laughs> even though they were both completely opposite systems, and very hostile to each other. So the p- contemporary politics gets involved in this. Then different tendencies trying to appropriate her name for causes that might not have been her own, and that is always a think a problem with a thinker. And of course, no one more, no one suffered more from this than Marx who is so wrongly associated with what called itself Marxism in the repressive regimes that used his name as their founding uh, ideology in the 20th century. Because I think if Marx had been around to see 20th century communism, status communism, uh, he would not have said that had anything to do with anything he advocated. And I think Luxembourg would say the same. So it's a difficult question that you asked, but I think as many she's a multidimensional figure So she's bound to be read in multidimensional ways, and now we can begin to do that uh, more accurately now that we're getting the full text of her works available in English. At least it'll take some time to get them all out, but we're in the process of doing so.
0: slash nbn50 to get 50% off.
2: Yeah, kind of jumping right off of that, now that um, at least some of the texts are starting to be translated and published, um, and as they're kind of slowly being disseminated uh, around, uh, do you see her place in contemporary Marxist scholarship kind of changing or adjusting? Uh, Do you see people kind of picking up uh, her work and trying to wrestle with it in new ways? Does, Does she have a place in the mm-hmm. contemporary theoretical left? Or, or is that yes. maybe kind of still developing too much to say? but
1: Right. Uh, definitely the answer to that is yes, and here is why. Um, Luxembourg dies in 1919. Um, she never gets to lead a successful socialist revolution or even to participate in a successful social revolution. Uh, where there was a revolution, the Bolshevik revolution of 1917, which claimed to be... Making a tra- attempting a transition to socialism, um, is the one that won out. Now, she was, a, she was a supporter of that revolution. She supported the Bolshevik seizure of power, but she developed criticism. She had criticisms of the regime for suppressing democratic liberties, uh, for some of their policies uh, in terms of relationship to the peasantry and also national minorities. The point is, is that, um, as the old saying goes, nothing succeeds like success. He was Luxembourg, the theoretician, who dies uh, trying to make a revolution that fails. Lenin makes a revolution that succeeds. So, and then the revolution uh, that Lenin leads, and Lenin, of course, greatly admired Luxembourg, although he had a lot of criticisms of her and vice versa. Uh, By the late 1920s, the Bolshevik regime comes under the control of Stalin and Stalinism, which views Luxembourg as a grave, grave threat to them. Because she argued there can be no socialism without democracy and no true democracy without socialism. Now, that is not something you tell Joe Stalin uh, and uh, to make him uh, to become popular with him. So she was read out of the communist movement. But then you had all these communist revolutions that spread around the world or at least communist regimes that came to power. So Luxembourg was sidelined. She seemed to be like, to many people, a historical figure only. The, the big players in, in town in the left, Marxist-Leninism on one side and social democracy on the other side, she, the, which was meaning something different than the social democracy she joined in, in the 1890s in Germany. This became basically uh, you know, a kind of a, liber, a liberal uh, critique of capitalism. So um, that begins to change though in the 1960s when a new left emerges and a new generation of revolutionaries emerges around the world who says, is there a third way? Is there a way that we don't have to accommodate to capitalism like uh, social democracy has, but that we don't have to, in opposing capitalism in a revolutionary manner, go down uh, the path of statist authoritarian uh, dictatorships of the Soviet Union, communist China, et cetera. So Luxembourg comes back into play in the late 60s. People are looking for this third path. But the irony is, is that even though she influences a great number of people in that period, in the 60s and 70s, the basic understanding of socialism that was held around the world did not change that much. People still thought of socialism as state control of property, end of a market economy, planned production, a planned economic system, and the inseparability of democracy and socialism and how socialism has to go beyond simply ending private property or anarchic market relations, but creating new human relations in the workplace and outside of it, these were all concerns of Luxembourg that just didn't get as much traction, um, especially as much of the new left kind of regressed into either liberalism or uh, of a kind of a vapid Marxist-Leninism. So there's a long stretch again. But then 1989 happens, and it's the collapse of these so-called Marxist-Leninist regimes, communist regimes. And now it doesn't look the same, right? It doesn't anymore look as it had for 60, 70 years that, well, Lenin was the one who had a program that worked. Luxembourg may have had nice ideas, but, you know, it never did anything. Um, Now you look and you say, well, wait a second, even without equating Lenin to Stalin, which I don't, uh, the point is is Lenin's light is not shining, uh, given all that happened in the 20th century. Luxembourg's light is. People go back and they say, "Oh my gosh, she was said, she was predicting what would happen to a revolution like Russia in 1918, a year after they came to power. If they suppress democracy and do not open up the society for democratic deliberation, there won't be a transition to socialism. Uh, you can't create socialism by imposing it behind people's backs. I mean she was saying this throughout her writings in the early 20th century. So now in the early 21st century, as an effort to revive the concept of socialism on a totally different foundation than that what has existed for the last hundred years, and it has to be a totally different foundation in order to succeed, a lot of elements of Luxembourg's work come into play. That doesn't mean she gives us the answers to how to work out a completely adequate conception of socialism for our life and times, but there's plenty of Luxembourg that can direct us to that goal.
2: Yeah, excellent. So I think that sets up a lot of great background. I want to shift gears and start talking about uh, some of the archiving and editorial work that's been done uh, with her publications. Uh, So before turning to the English editions that you are working on, I want to talk about the history of editing and collecting her work in its original languages. Um, You noted in the introduction to Nettle's reprinted biography that even in German, there are still new volumes being uh, compiled uh, very recently. And I imagine a lot of challenges uh, come up because it crosses several different languages in so many different places. So can you talk a bit about the history of her work even before translating it, you know? Is-
1: right. Uh, very, very good point. Um, Because of this kind of making Luxembourg into a non-person for uh, since from the late 1920s or even middle 1920s, right through the 1960s until, until let's say this late 60s, middle, late 60s, you have this 40 year period where she's kind of a non-person uh, with some exceptions. And so very, very little of her work is, is available, even in German um, and in English, a pitifully small amount of her work was translated. Some of it was translated here and there, mainly by small radical groups. Uh, and frankly, the group that translated more of her work into English than maybe anybody, was a left-wing political party in Sri Lanka, of all places. Sri Lanka had a very progressive left-wing regime uh, in the 60s for a while. uh, And uh, they gave support for the publication of Luxembourg's, at least a party that was part of the coalition government, supported the publication of Luxembourg's writings in English in Sri Lanka. And that's how some people in Europe and America got a hold of Luxembourg's books, believe it or not, in the 60s or early 60s. The point is, is that um, in Germany, uh, in East Germany, she couldn't be discussed really until this began to change gradually in the late '60s, but definitely in the '80s. Before the fall of the wall, uh, there's now there is a small circle of people in uh, East German academia who are have enough leeway now to begin to publish her work and to revisit her legacy more systematically. And this results in Dies Verlag, which was the published originally the publishing company of the. East German Communist Party, but now, of course, since then, for the last 30 years, has been an independent, very important publishing company in in German, in, in the United Germany, uh, began to publish her complete works, uh, collected works, I'm sorry, not complete, collected works, Kazammel Tverka. And this was about, this was five volumes of about roughly 500 pages, four or 500 pages apiece, or 600 pages apiece, collecting her political writings and some of her economic writings. Uh, but it was not complete certain things you could not publish in East Germany, or they would not want to take the chance with. Uh, A lot of her writings were done, and it only included, for the most part, writings she wrote in German. But Luxembourg also wrote an enormous amount of material in Polish, not just because she was from Poland, but she headed uh, the Marxist party in in Poland, which was an underground party. And she was the leading figure in that party uh, for some 20 years. And there's a ton of material that she wrote in Polish. That material only recently has started to get into German. Some of it was in German before, but bulk of it is only starting to get into German now. It's still not even mainly in German, and almost none of it got into a translation into English until we're beginning to do so now. So there was big gaps in the understanding of Luxembourg. Even today, I don't think people have a full view of what Luxembourg was like as a political activist, because if you subtract out or ignore her work within the Polish movement, you get a, you're you not getting a complete it, picture there. And you have to measure her writings against her own political practice. And the only way to do that is to look at what she was doing inside the Polish movement. And there's not that, and unless you read Polish or have access to those documents, it's not likely to get that. So this material now is starting to be translated. So um, the Example de Werke, that was East German, Uh, published. It was a second edition of the collected works in German that was done later, after the fall of the Berlin Wall, which is somewhat improved, but still not complete. Um, Now, for myself and others like me who came to political consciousness in the 1970s, when I started to get interested in radical theory and came across the work of Luxembourg, you know, I came across like pamphlets like the Reformer Revolution. I know I knew about this book, The Accumulation of Capital, though I hadn't read it yet. It was too difficult for me to handle when I was younger. Uh, uh, you know, The Mass Strike pamphlet uh, and her pamphlet, the booklet on the Russian Revolution, the critique of the Bolsheviks, these writings were already translated and were known. I thought that was basically Rosa Luxemburg. That was her basic corpus of writings. But as I began to get deeper into studying her, I realized this is just the tip of the iceberg. I mean, we in the English speaking world don't have 80 to 90% of what she wrote. I mean, this is what I was saying to myself 30 years ago. Now we have maybe, you know, 80%. We're missing 80%. We have maybe 20, 25% of what she wrote. There's a huge amount of her writings that haven't gotten into English. The major works are in English but there's a lot of significant essays, quite lengthy. There's manuscripts, there's drafts, there's lectures, there's letters, and there's an assortment of journalism, newspaper articles. She was a prolific journalist. Most of that not in English. So we're trying to correct that with the complete works of Rosa Luxemburg. Now, in terms of what you mentioned about German writings, just two things here, quickly. Uh, There's a a series of magnificent scholars in Germany that have been spending literally their entire lives, not just studying what Rose Luxemburg wrote, but discovering what she wrote, that is tracking down manuscripts or anything they can find by Luxembourg in archives and libraries or wherever they can. And the foremost person in this was Anneliese Leszczyk. Uh, she uh, was one of the co-editors of the Gazeta de in Germany and wrote a very excellent, unfortunately not yet translated into English biography of Luxembourg. She spent 40 years of her life or more devoted to uh, collecting uh, materials by Luxembourg. And that's not an easy job, because Luxembourg wrote many of her journalistic articles either anonymously or under a pseudonym. The German co- collected works chose to only include materials by her that were signed, which leaves out the majority of her journalism. Uh, and also in, for reason that it was not clear whether she wrote them or not. Well, people like Anneliese Leshiska, Adekar Luban, others in Berlin, Figured out which are by Luxembourg and which are not in these unsigned or anonymous articles. So, by the well, within let's say five or six years ago, the amount of material was quite stunning that was collected. And it was published, it's been published in two volumes in Germany, uh, each volume 1,000 pages long volume six and volume a new volume six and volume seven of a Kazamba Werke, 2,000 pages worth of material written in German that nobody in Germany knew about before. <laughs> this just had lived in the last six years. Uh, we're gonna, with now translating some of that material into English, eventually we'll translate all of it. But in addition to that, it turns out there's all this Polish writings. And I still don't know how many pages of it there are, but certainly at least 1,500, maybe 2,000 pages worth of material in Polish, which uh, vast majority of it never translated to any language. And as a matter of fact, unavailable in Poland not reproduced in Poland either uh, since her death. So there's a lot of material now to work from, and it makes very challenging the task of putting together a complete works. When I started on this project, I thought it would be pretty straightforward. You just take the Gazamata translate to English, and bingo, you've got a complete works of Rosa Luxemburg. I was very naive. Uh, then as I start working on the, pro- on, the pro- on the project, I hear, oh, there's this manuscript that's just been found. There's that manuscript. We hear about some other manuscript that hasn't been found yet. And you begin to get a lot more material. So this is what we're trying to do. This is uh, what one has to do to try to put the pieces of a great figure together. And as we do that, we can both appreciate her legacy better and also avoid certain stereotypes that might be uh, the result of a one-sided reading.
2: Yeah, excellent. So that kind of leads right into discussing the English translations that you're working on. So I first want to ask just kind of a broad question. Um, You've talked about the scope, like it is intended to be very complete, uh, but I also want to ask about the way you're organizing it. So, so far, you've got a volume of letters, a couple volumes of economic writings, and a couple volumes of political writings. So I just want to ask kind of where, uh, how you're kind of sorting these and what other Uh, genres you're going to be including. Um, I'm sure there'll be volumes of journalistic writings as well. Um, So can you maybe speak to how you're kind of organizing, you know, these thousands and thousands of pages of work?
1: Right. Uh, Well, there was a lot, it's a complicated procedure to put out a complete works, uh, given some of the factors I've mentioned. Uh, So how do you do that? I mean, one approach, the simplest approach, the most straightforward Would be to um, uh, to have a chronological, you know, start off with you know her earliest writings in 1893 or so, and then go up to her latest in 1919, volume by volume, not grouped by theme or anything like this, just straight chronology. But there's problems with that because then there's one there's problems with it on a number of levels. (laughs) One of which is that you first have to have all the material in front of you before you can do the chronological ordering. And as material is still to be discovered or is in the process of being discovered, or or made available, that becomes very, very difficult. So a decision was made um, early on in the process that we would actually, we were originally thinking of doing it chronologically. We decided, no, let's do it thematically. So uh, the complete works are divided into three rubrics, three separate sections. One, economic writings, two, political writings, three, correspondence. Now, it's a bit of an artificial division because she was not an academic economist. She was writing on economics as part of her political project of advancing the cause of socialism. But at the same time, as she herself says, many of those economic writings, what she called technical scientific treatises, right? Which don't have direct political application. Like her work, the accumulation of capital, which has political implications for sure. But it's on a rather narrow, specific aspect of Marxist theory that uh, at least in her day would be something of interest, mainly to specialists in the field, not necessarily the general public. That's changing now though. But in any case, we decided better to have, to start with the economic volumes, have several volumes of her economic work, and then proceed with her political writings. Now, why begin with the economic writings instead of the political? Why do one versus the other? Well, she wrote, as I mentioned, four books on economics in her lifetime. One was her dissertation, which was published after she got her PhD as a book. The second was a, um, a great magnum opus called The Accumulation of Capital, written in 1913, a four or 500 page mammoth study. Uh, the third was a defense of that book against her critics called The Anti-Critique. And the fourth was a uh, book that was only published after her death from her from her notes or from draft chapters, called The Introduction to Political Economy. This came out of her work at as a teacher at the party school in, in her effort to give an account of economic history and the nature of capitalism. Um, so, But the introduction to political economy, unlike the other three that I mentioned, had not been translated into English until... 2013, 2013, when we published it in the first volume of the Complete Works of Rosa Luxemburg. Only one chapter was available. So we thought there's a number of that, it's best to begin with the economic writings because not only has the introduction to political economy not appeared in English before, even though it had been in Italian, French, Spanish, and other languages for a long time, there was also a whole series of other economic writings, notes, essays. Etc. in preparation for these four economic works, which had never been published in English. So we figured there's so much new material in economics, and that is really where her stature as a theoretician comes in, that will start with several volumes of her economic writings and then go to a political writing. So volume one deals with almost all the material in volume one of the complete works is uh, um, material that had not previously been translated into English or even available before uh, to in any language. The second volume has new translations of two of those four works on economics, Accumulation of Capital and the Anti-Critique*, which was needed because the earlier translation was done back in the early 1950s, and it had some problems. Um, Then the rubric of political writing starts with volume three. We actually are going to produce a third volume on economics, by the way. It's gonna be like volume two B, because we've also been made aware of about 300 pages of other notes and such, not published material by her on economics that we didn't know about when we were doing volumes one and two. Now, the political volumes are arranged arranged by theme as well. They're broken down into sub-themes. So political writings, but grouped into like four or five themes. The first theme is writings on the question of revolution directly on revolution, actual revolutions. What did Luxembourg say and do about actual revolutions? Second, and that we have three volumes uh, prepared for that, volume uh, three, which has already been published on the 1905 revolution, volume six, uh, volume four, which is also on the 1905 revolution, and volume five, which covers her writings on revolution up to the 1917 and 1918 revolutions. Uh, Volume four is uh, in print and should be out by the fall, or late summer. Uh, Volumes five is being edited now and should be out. Well, when it will be out, it's a good question, but it'll be done and ready for publication uh, by next year. Uh, That's the first theme of the political writing, three volumes on revolution. The next theme, which we're starting on now, is debates on revolutionary strategy and organization. What did she say about the different political debates within the organized left over issues of tactics, strategy, and organization. Also includes a question of spontaneity. Why don't you write about that? That's going to be in at least three, maybe four volumes uh, that would cover from chronologically from 1893 to 1919. Each one of these themes is arranged chronologically, but they're separate themes. The third theme would probably be um, her writings on the national question and nationalism. Uh, there is a short volume that was pu- published of selections of her writings on nationalism uh, back in the 70s. But there's about, I, I would estimate, a good 15, 1,600 pages worth of material uh, it, that has um, not been in English that we would, would find its way into that uh, theme, three or four volumes on the national question. Also, several volumes on colonial policy and what we call imperialism today. Um and there would be at least one volume, probably one volume, on um, her literary works. She also wrote some very interesting things on literature and culture. Uh, all of these volumes have journalistic writings in them. Uh, even the uh, economic volumes have a couple of uh, writings on economics that were originally published in periodicals. Uh, volume three, which is already out, uh, dealing with the writings on the 1905 revolution, is 90% newspaper articles and journalism. So that 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 material is woven in into into each theme. So it has published uh, material that she published in a lifetime, material that are uh, in the form of um, um, newspaper articles, essays, speeches, etc. Then once that's out of the way, that is the volumes on uh, political writings, which would be uh, at least nine volumes. I would have to say at this point we're looking at uh, maybe more. Uh, we would then do the complete correspondence. Uh, Verso uh, thought it would be a good idea when we were beginning the project uh, to first publish a more comprehensive collection of her letters. There's been a number of very fine collections of her letters published in English over the years, but none of them were much more than 200 pages or so. And there's a lot of letters she wrote. So we took uh, a a collection of her letters that Analyst Lasiska had published in Germany some years back, amended it somewhat, and published that in a new translation as the letters of Rosa Luxemburg in 2011 as a companion to the series. Uh, But there's five volumes of correspondence in German. That's maybe 20% of her correspondence, the volume that we published. So there's a lot more letters uh, that haven't seen the light of day, uh, at least to an English speaking audience. Those will be in like five volumes at the back end of the process. So that's how we get to 17 or 18 or maybe 19 volumes. Um, God willing, we live so long.
2: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, asked, I wanted to ask about the letters volume you've already published, um, as kind of a companion volume as I was looking through it. Um, it's like, a about 500 pages with something around 800 footnotes, you know, explaining key people she's corresponding with dates, uh, events going on in the background. Um, So one can kind of like uh, casually peruse through it, just kind of get a sense of her day-to-day life and her prose um, and writing ability, but it's also very clearly uh, a very scholarly volume meant for people who are really trying to understand the background against which her theoretical work was done, uh, her activist work. So I'm wondering if you can talk about uh, your intentions with this and what you mean when you say it's a companion volume
1: and uh, and the sort of work that went into that. Right. Thank you for that question. Um, yes, uh, obviously, uh, you know, those who are working in this project love Rosa Luxemburg very much. <laughs> I mean, we, we wouldn't be working on this unless we thought she was worthy of the effort. Uh, but um, we want to do, uh, we want to make sure from the beginning when we started in this project uh, that we are going to be as objective as possible and not um, kind of, you know, write, footnotes that are uh, tendentious or opinionated or uh, simply are a a way to uh, launch attacks on people and this sort of thing, which has happened with her works earlier. I'll give you an example. Um, There was a former American communist named Bertram Wolfe, who then became an anti-communist when he realized what the Soviet Union that he so adored turned out to be. Uh, And he published in the early 1960s a book called Leninism or Marxism by Rosa Luxemburg, which had two sections, one a 1904 essay critiquing uh, Lenin on his organizational theories, and the other was the first English translation of her uh, booklet uh, criticizing the Bolsheviks for their policies after 1918, and also which contains also positive evaluations of the Bolsheviks. Now, of course, Luxemburg never wrote anything under the title Leninism or Marxism, Uh, Wolf was using this as a, as kind of an instrument within the Cold War to claim Luxembourg for anti-communism. And, uh, and now it's not what he included in the books was what she wrote, but of course, with plenty of tendentious footnotes that try to steer the reader in understanding what she really meant in one or another direction. We wanted to make sure to avoid anything like that from any direction. So um, we took great care and we didn't always succeed, I think. Uh, There's a couple of footnotes I would write differently today, but the point is is that we tried to take care in as many places as possible to present an objective recording of the uh, facts that the reader should know about a particular reference that Luxembourg makes. We're not going to quote somebody like a Menshevik thinker and say, Oh, to Luxembourg is referring to a counter-revolutionary Menshevik, some nonsense like this, or this individual is a petty bourgeois leftist, which Luxembourg was critiquing. Uh, the reader can make up their own mind what they think of these people. Um, we simply want to give it straight and be as factually accurate as possible. And that's what I think you meant when you said scholarly footnotes. Um, that's what you try to do in a, in a project like this. Um, and the uh, the beauty of the letters volume is that it op- It provides an entree into Luxembourg's work. I mean, Luxembourg's economic writings are not easy to get into. If you're not, don't have some background in economic theory, and especially not in, in Marxist economic theory, if you dive just into the accumulation of capital, it, you're going to have a hard time. And some people will not simply not be that interested in that area for work. And there are people who can dive directly into political writings, but there's others who might be turned off. Oh, that's not exactly what's floating their boat either because she's talking about political events that happened a century ago that many of us don't really feel that much um at stake in so um the letters volume gives you a um, vantage point into her personality and her range of interests and you can see her thinking out loud to her lovers uh, to her lovers to her comrades uh to the world at large uh to the um to the tit mice in her in her prison cell which she uh you know only people the only being she could talk to okay <laughs> uh when she's in solitary confinement for opposing world war 1 she had several other prison spells in prison so it's a magnificent entree into who luxembourg is and what her voice is so it's really it is a good way through the letters to get to know rosa luxembourg when people who aren't that familiar with the work uh, ask me you know you know, what can I read of Luxembourg? I will usually send them as a holiday present, uh, the letters volume. <laughs> and then from there, of course, you can get into the more, the weeds of her more more in-depth theoretical and political writings from there, if it so interests you. So there's many people who have, come to, who have found fascination with Luxembourg's work who are not even Marx, we are not Marxist or not, not socialist. And that's all the better, right? In other words, a, a, a person who speaks to different individuals, depending on where the background is, uh, is a very meaningful thing. Uh, but of course, at the same time, that doesn't mean Luxembourg was not a socialist and was not a Marxist. She gave her life for revolutionary socialism. And anybody who would try to deny that one would would get a few words from me.
2: Yeah. Uh, so as a final question, I just want to uh, talk about, um, you're actually working on crowdfunding uh, the. Uh, collection right now. Um, you've got a few volumes published, but you are still you still just have a mountain of stuff to translate. So I'm wondering if you could just uh, tell listeners about that a bit and how they can maybe help in their own little way to bring this to fruition.
1: Great. Thank you very much. Well, I should say from this get-go that this project would not be possible without the Rosa Luxemburg Foundation uh, in Berlin, um, which is a... Uh, Organization that's been founded uh, quite a number of years ago. That's not exclusively or specifically devoted to Rosa Luxemburg per se. It's named after institute is named after her, but they do a lot of important educational work around Rosa Luxemburg, and they have helped to f- provide funds uh, for uh, our some at least some funds for our project. What funds are involved in the project? All of us, myself included, who's the general editor. We have an editorial board of sixteen people. Um, all of us do this work for free. It's a labor of love. We don't get paid a nickel for it. We don't expect to get paid a nickel for it. Um, the only people who get the only cost factor, uh, is the cost of translations, which of course is considerable when you have like, you know, you're producing a 600 page volume that's 600 pages of material translated from Russian, German, and Polish, right? Uh, there's actually a few things of hers in Yiddish as well that we'll get to at some point. Uh, but the point is, is that, um, the Rose Luxembourg Foundation has been very helpful in, in helping to get us money for covering the cost of translations, but they can't cover the complete cost. So we have to have supplementary funds to uh, make the volumes possible. And for that, uh, there is a Toledo Translation Fund named after the famous school of Muslim translators uh, that uh, existed in the Toledo, Spain uh, during the Middle, uh, middle Ages the Toledo Translation Fund. And if you just typed into a search engine, Rosa Luxemburg Toledo Translation Fund, it would bring you right away to a page called The Complete Works of Rosa Luxemburg, describes the project, says how much money we're trying to raise for the next uh, several volumes, in particular volumes six, seven, and eight. We don't have enough money yet to uh, commission translations for those three volumes. We have some, but not enough. So uh, for this uh, project to go forward, we are doing this kind of crowd sharing. And if anybody can make a contribution, that would be greatly, greatly appreciated. And I just want to add finally to that, that there's really exciting stuff uh, that's uh, just now being translated to give you an idea of what's there. I mean, the volume four, which will be out uh, later this year, for instance, includes detailed notes she made of the English Revolution of the 1640s, right? Which we didn't know even existed before. There's an essay from 1908 that she wrote in Polish, about a 30-page essay, about the question, what happens when you make a revolution or in a country, but no other country joins you in that revolutionary process? Can you sustain a transition to socialism where there is no um, international revolution? It's a fascinating question that, of course, is the question that all revolutionaries have had to face. For the last hundred years, right? Uh, Can you make a successful socialist society when you're surrounded by it? If you're you're an island in the sea of capitalism, and it's English, it 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 will it will be in English for the first time in Volume Four of the Complete Works. Uh, And there's dozens of other pieces raising these sorts of really contemporary issues. That again, many of these writings were just unknown a few years ago. So this is worthwhile work, I think. I'm being subjective because I'm involved in it, but I think it is worthwhile.
2: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it all sounds fascinating and very exciting. Uh, So Peter Hudis, thank you so much for being with
1: us. Oh, thank you, Stephen, very much for the opportunity.